Jeremiah chapter 7. We're going to continue our study in Jeremiah chapter 7. We began last week with the first 20 verses. And tonight uh, we're going to begin with verse 21. And I'll get us all caught up together in what uh, is going on in this particular passage here in just a moment. Let's go ahead and read the first few verses from verses 21 through 26, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get right into our study. Jeremiah 7, verse 21, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts, and went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent to you all my servants and the prophets, or my servants the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. And yet they did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Let's pray. Father, help us in understanding your word this evening. Grant us wisdom and understanding. Grant us discernment. Lord, uh, let it be that as you fill us with your Holy Spirit, we will gain an understanding and a wisdom that is beyond what this uh, text plainly on paper can offer to us. It is the it is the very heart and the spirit of what is being read that we need to understand and come to grips with this evening. So help us, Lord, do that tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue on in looking at Jeremiah's temple sermon, we began, of course, the beginning of chapter 1, uh, dealt with this uh, particular sermon that, that uh, God has given uh, to Jeremiah to give to the children of Judah in Jerusalem. But we want to take a moment to review these first 20 verses which we studied last time. This is the third prophetic message given by Jeremiah to the children of Judah and Jerusalem and presented at the gate. It says there at the beginning of chapter 7 that it was presented at the gate of the Lord's house. So at the very gate when people are walking in, going into offer their sacrifices or to pay their tithes or to, as it were, worship the Lord, Jeremiah is giving them this particular message. And the emphasis of this message focused on God's punishment, which was to come upon the people due to their false religion and their worship of idols while continuing to attend temple services and ceremonies and putting their faith in deceptive words. What were those deceptive words? Well, they were believing the lies of the false prophets that they could go on living in sin and still go to temple and worship a holy God. Now think about that for just a moment. I want you to continue to draw parallels to what we're learning here in Jeremiah and what is going on even in the church of Jesus Christ today. Because these particular parallels can be seen pretty clearly if we, if we just look at what's being said. How many people today are going into churches, coming into churches, doing this, doing that, you know, living in sin, but, but believing the words that, well, if you just go to church, it'll be okay. You can still go and worship. 
The problem with that thought is, as we saw as we saw it last time in the text, is that the temple had become for them their good luck charm. Well, if we just go, it's kind of like safe, you know, base. You know, when you play tag, you know, you always had to run to base. You'd be safe there, but that's not that's not <laughs> that's not what God intended the temple to be. And so their worship did them no good. This is what we learned last time. This was one of the first. This was, this was the first indictment that we saw. The first indictment of four. We saw two last week. We're going to see two more this week. So the first one is that their worship did them no good. That was the indictment that God was telling them and giving them. And Jeremiah's prayers for them would do them no good as well. That was the second indictment. Their prayers and Jeremiah's prayers for them. He even tells Jeremiah, don't pray for them anymore. In essence. Because they're bought into their, they bought into their sin and they're going all the way and I'm going to have to judge them. So don't even pray for him anymore. So consequently, part of what we saw last week, baking cakes to the Queen of Heaven. Remember that? Baking cakes to the Queen of Heaven would make things even worse for them. And as we closed last time, the people would bear both spite and shame as consequences of their sin, leading us to the third indictment now tonight, which is that your sacrifices will do you no good. Now he speaks to them directly and says, your sacrifices, your offerings will do you no good. And so look at verses 21. Uh, we're going to read verse 21 through 23, but what we read earlier, 21 through 26, is, 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 is this whole indictment here. So it says in verse 21, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat. Now stop there for just a moment. If we were to kind of remove everything before and after this particular verse, you would say that would be a pretty good verse, I would think. Gee whiz, God is saying, go ahead and take your offerings and take your burnt offerings and add them to the other sacrifices. Go ahead and go ahead and eat them. Sounds good to me, doesn't it? Except that if we take it out of context, it sounds good. But if we put it back into context, it is judgmental, isn't it? It is a heavy-duty problem for them. God is telling them, you know, go ahead and do this. But then he says, for I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you that it may be well with you. Now notice what he says. Now, you, you all remember, if you were here on Sunday morning, you remember that I was talking about how people today are asked questions, and a lot of times they would actually, if you ask the question with the answer in the question, if you just listen to the question, you'd hear the, you'd hear the answer. You remember that? You remember that about, uh, you know, what, in what state do they run the Kentucky Derby? And, and, you know, somebody said Kansas. But the answer is Kentucky because it's in the answer. The obvious thing. And here's, you know, here's the thing. Here's what God is saying. Is, is it being listened to? Are we listening to what God says? He says, obey my voice. And I will be your God. And you shall be my people. And walk in all the ways that I've commanded you, that it may be well with you. Now that's very simple. What do we learn from that statement? God says, if you will obey my voice, I'll be your God. What benefit is God being our God for us? Well, I'd say tremendous benefits, wouldn't you? That if He's our God, we're His people, He's going to have His hand upon us, He's going to protect us, He's going to give us everything we need, He's going to prosper us in in the way He wants to do so, so that He will be glorified in everything that we do, and we will be be blessed with good. I I don't see any, any other way to interpret what He's saying here. 
So he says, that's what I commanded you. So it's important to understand that the Lord was not denouncing the whole sacrificial system that he had given the Israelites in Exodus and Leviticus. He's not denouncing that. No. What Jeremiah was doing was reminding them that the multitude of their sacrifices meant nothing to God because their hearts were unfaithful to God. That's what he's saying to them. You might as well eat the offerings and sacrifices because I don't want them. That's what God is saying. You might as well eat them yourself because I don't want them. In essence, he was telling them that, you know, that... uh, that very same thought. What good is it? What good is it for you? That's why he says your sacrifices will do you no good with this heart that you have. Turn to Jeremiah, go back one, uh, one page to Jeremiah 6, verse 20. We've already dealt with this particular thought for a moment. For what purpose, he says to me, comes frankincense from Sheba and sweet cane from a far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifice is sweet to me. So we've already seen that from, uh, from God in Jeremiah. But go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 1, just a book right before this. Go back to Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13. Go back to that particular verse, first chapter of Isaiah. Verse 13 says, bring no more futile sacrifices. God said, I'm, I'm tired of seeing all these sacrifices coming. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. What's he saying? You're coming, you're bringing all these things. I don't want these things. I want your heart. And I want you to have the right heart that obeys me. Because I'm God. And you're not. And I'm worthy of your worship. And I'm worthy of your praise. And I'm worthy of your obedience. Because I created you and gave you everything that you need for life. And for godliness. Look at Hosea chapter 8 verse 13, the prophet Hosea. You can write these down and look them up later. Hosea 8 verse 13 says, For the sacrifices of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. You go to the prophet Amos, and and there in Amos chapter 5 verses 21 and 22, notice what it says. I hate, I despise your feast days. This is God speaking. I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Because you see, what God wants is obedience. What God wants is obedience and not sacrifice. Sound familiar? He wants mercy, not religious rituals. He wants obedience and not sacrifice. Words that were given by the prophet Samuel. And the priest, by the way. Samuel to the king, Saul. Because of Saul's usurping of his authority and going beyond what he was called to do. And in essence, he was also disobedient because he was called to take uh, and... and, and, uh, get rid of all of the enemies of God and instead he kept for himself certain animals for sacrifice but it was really you know revealing his heart that it wasn't for that and he tried to weasel his way out of these things 
by saying, oh, I've kept them so that we can worship and honor God with them. But notice what Samuel says to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, verses 22 and 23. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed, which is to pay attention and listen carefully and observe what you hear than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. To rebel against God in this manner is like the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Stubbornness very important word here because you see that this is what this is what Israel and, and Judah and Jerusalem are being indicted with their stubbornness to hear God in the reading we talked about them going backward and not forward what was that telling you sounds like the donkey it sounds like sounds like that animal that's stubborn and is stiff-necked and when you pull in one direction he pulls back that's the stubbornness. And there's a lot of stubborn people even today in the church. There's stubbornness because they want things their way. And they're, not, they're just not willing to let God be God in their lives. They're not willing to let Christ be Christ completely. It's got to be Him and me too. There's a little formula I think that we need to learn in life. It actually began with us before we came to Christ. And it, it, it begins with this, this particular thought. At one time it was all of me and none of Jesus. Well, we might have gone to church, we might have done a lot of things, you know, uh, religiously, but the bottom line was it was all of me and none of Jesus. Then you begin to hear a little bit about the Lord, you know, and somebody be sharing the love of Christ with you and all. Then you begin to be interested, and so there was a little bit of Jesus and a lot more still of me. But as the truth began to, to as the truth began to become brighter in our lives, and it revealed more of the darkness in our hearts, there was a lot more of Jesus and a lot less of me. Until came that day when we finally realized that Jesus is Lord, that there is no other God but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is God, the Son, and He sacrificed Himself. He, he came and gave Him Himself totally and completely for my sins, for your sins, and for the sins of the world. And He died on the cross, and He, and he suffered such shame there on the cross, but yet He shed all of His blood for the forgiveness of our sins and to those who would believe and receive Him and, 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 and confess with the mouth of the Lord Jesus and believe in, in their heart that He's risen from the dead, that you would be saved and salvation came and when salvation came there was a lot more of Jesus and a little bit of me but the more we live our life as believers in Jesus Christ we come to realize it's all of Jesus and none of me and this is what Samuel has said and this is what God is saying to his people I want you just to obey me it's not sacrifice that I'm looking for. 
What does God desire? Hosea chapter 6 verse 6 says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You see that? I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Do you know God? We asked that to parents the other day. Do you know God? Do you really know Him? More than just know about Him? Do you know Him? Do you talk to Him every day? Do you, do you have a conversation with Him? Do you, have, do you have fellowship with Him? Do you have prayer time with Him? Do you have that time of, of intimate fellowship with Christ? Do you know Him? You know, the prophet Micah asked this question in Micah 6, verse 7. He said, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And in essence, he answers his own question in the next verse. In verse 8, it says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? We used to sing that song. That was a song we used to sing. We need to sing it again. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to to walk humbly with your God? Looking for that sacrifice. I mean, the sacrifice is you. You are the sacrifice. Paul in Romans chapter 12 says that, you know, that, uh, that we are to be the living sacrifices, holy and acceptable before God. We are the sacrifice. God wanted Judah to walk in the way of righteousness. He had commanded and, and he would have acknowledged them and it would have been well with them. You know, there's always this fear. The fear exists even today in Israel. And it's a tremendous fear, we can tell you. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they have, a, they have a lot of confidence in, in, in their, certainly their, their armed forces, their, you know, the uh, Israeli Defense Forces, the Army Air Force and all. But, um, and they really need to turn to their God more than anything else. But, but they, they, they even have fear of the election that's coming up here in the United States. Because whoever sits in the Oval Office has a lot of influence as to how much protection Israel will have from the greatest and largest nation and most uh, mighty nation in all the earth. And if you get somebody sitting in that seat that doesn't have any appreciation for Israel whatsoever, they said, we're in trouble. Can you imagine if they would just turn to the Lord? They would just turn to their God. God is saying that to them. If you'll just walk in the way of righteousness and obey me, I, uh, it'll go well with you. I'll be your God, you'll be my people, and, and things will go well for you. Instead, what happened? Instead, they paid no regard to God's word. Listen carefully, because we're going to see this in the next passage. They paid no regard to God's word. They showed no disposition of character to be attended to God's counsel. They walked in the imaginations of their evil hearts and followed its irregular and impure motives and motions, rather than the holy dictates of God's Spirit. And then as we read, they went backwards, not forward. They went backward. Instead of becoming more wise, 
more obedient and holy, they grew more corrupt so that they became more wasteful and squandering than their fathers. And this is what we've read. Look at verses 24 through 26. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear. You know, what a wonder, it's, a, it's a beautiful picture. You know, the, the Hebrew language is a beautiful picture language. And so when it says they did not obey or incline their ear, it's as if they were just to bring their ears so close to God to say, Lord, whatever you say, we're going to do. Because you're God. And we're going to bring our ear close and incline. And you think of the pictures of the apostles inclining upon Jesus' heart. John being the one, you know, that rested in the bosom of Jesus, you know. Inclining himself. A beautiful picture. But he says, you didn't even do that. They did not obey or incline their ear, but they followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. And since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent to you all my servants the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Off the prophets go. You know, there's, a, there's an interesting thought here too, because you see, there was a time when Jesus, while he was in his earthly ministry, spent a lot of time alone in prayer. And very early he'd rise up, very early he'd go and he'd seek the face of the Father. And the idea here is also to give us a, a picture of how, in a sense, he's daily rising up and awakening his, his prophets to go and minister to his people. But what we learn in the scriptures is that the more the prophets came, the more they hated the prophets. They didn't do what the prophets said. So it says, yet they did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. And there again is that stubbornness. To have their way and not the way of God. And so it says they did worse than their fathers. And progressively every generation did worse and worse and worse until judgment would come. So time and again the Lord sent his prophets to instruct and warn the people. And time and again the people ignored or rejected them and refused to listen to God's word. And each generation had become more stubborn than the previous, committing more evil than the generation before. And they were so far from what the Lord did delight in. What did the Lord delight in? Well, David tells us that in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. Here was a man whose heart was after God. And he was a man after God's own heart, the scripture tells us. But David was human and he made his mistakes and he, and he faltered mightily. He sinned greatly before God. Not only with Bathsheba, but in the, in the, you know, the arranging, you know, in the plotting of, 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 of even taking Bathsheba's husband's life in battle so that it would appear that, you know, he was being so merciful, so gracious to bring her into his life. And then he would bring up whatever child that she was having from her husband, but it wasn't the case. It was all cover up. So he was human and he made mistakes. And when the prophet Nathan got in his face and said to him, you're, you're the man. After giving a little parable of a little sheep that was taken by a great king or great man. He says, you're the man. And David, of course, was convicted by the Spirit of God. That he repented, but 
You see, it teaches us how sin has its great consequences. And nonetheless, David had to face those. And it was something that would affect not only his sons to come, but the nation of Israel would even come down to being split after Solomon through his grandson. You see the consequences. They always follow us. We can't escape them. But David learned that, and, and, and so in his cry to God, he, he said these words in Psalm fifty-one, sixteen. He says, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I'd give it. If it was all a matter of just offering a sacrifice to be forgiven, I, I would just offer it, whatever it be. I could get it because I'm the king. I could get anything I want, you know, I'm the king. But that's not what you want. You, you do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. You see, that's the greatest offering we can give. It's to come before God, the holy God, who we have sinned against, and say to him, Lord, I, I confess my sin before you. And I am truly sorry, deeply sorry for my sin. And I think sometimes that that seems to be missing some, sometimes, if not a lot, in, in some people going to God. They want an easy in with God. They want to just be able to say, well, Lord, you know, I'm human, so just forgive me, okay? And they don't have a sorrow in their heart for the sin that they've committed. They don't have a sorrow. They've never wept over sinning against a, 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 a holy God. You know, the sorrow that was poured out from the hearts of believers... David, for example, when he wept over sin, you know, he not only wept over the sin he committed before a holy God, but he wept over a sin that he knew would have been, you know, it, it would have been to his separation from God. I talked a little bit about that, uh, you know, on Sunday, uh, about that fear, you know, of committing you know, sin. I mean, just fearing, not wanting to disobey the commandments of God. And I think that sometimes we in the church need to reevaluate what, what, what our understanding is about repentance and the cleansing of the heart. He says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken spirit brokenness but I can tell you this if you are truly broken before God that's the, the first step for being really fixed well true brokenness brings us great healing because it's God who will heal us we don't heal ourselves. it's God who heals us because we have come to him broken 
And this is the, the economy of God is so different than the world. Something broken in the world is no good. But God says, if you're not broken, you're no good. I want you to be broken. Because if you keep wanting your way, you'll never be healed. You'll just put a band-aid over things. I, I think some people will go around life. If we were able to see every band-aid that they put on their life, they, they would, you know, they would be, look funny because there would be band-aids all over the place. Just put another band-aid on another problem, but it's not healing you. Band-aids don't heal. Changing the heart heals. Submitting the heart to God so that He can heal it heals the brokenness. And God will never despise the heart that comes that way. It brings us to the fourth indictment. The indictment in verses 27 to the end of the chapter is, Now my discipline and chastisement do them no good. So let's review the the four indictments. The first indictment is, Their worship will do them no good. The second indictment is, that uh, To Jeremiah, your prayers will... Their prayers, nor will your prayers do them any good. The third indictment is, your sacrifices, speaking to them, your sacrifices will do you no good. And now the fourth, my discipline and chastisement do them no good. Let's look at verses 27 through 31. Let's just read that there. Therefore you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not obey you. Stop there for just a moment. Think about this. God is telling Jeremiah, go tell them these things, but they're not going to listen to you. What would you say to God? Well, I know we wouldn't say it, but we're probably thinking, well, God, if I'm going to go say something, they're not going to listen. Why should I even go? Right? Seems like a waste of time to me. But there's a reason for this, you see. He says, therefore you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not obey you. You shall also call to them, but they will not answer you. So you shall say to them, notice, now, they don't listen, this is what you say. This is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God, nor receiveth correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. That is a tremendous indictment, folks. Truth has perished. You know, when there's no more truth, what do you have? Complete and total anarchy. Complete and total chaos. Because lies cannot be foundational for any good. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Cut off your hair and cast it away. And take up a lamentation on the desolate heights. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of His wrath. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, saith the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to pollute it. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. 
This was obviously a tough ministry for Jeremiah. I mean, can you imagine just being told to speak forth these words and no one's going to hear you, no one is going to respond to what, what you're saying? I mean, it begs the question, why would God do that? Well, because even when the Lord knows they will not respond, He gives them ample opportunity. There's the reason. He gives them ample opportunity to hear His truths so that they can respond. What, is, what did we say about God not long ago? Boy, he's merciful. Boy, does he love his people. So much so that he gives them opportunity after opportunity to repent of their sins, to turn to their God, and to once again receive the blessings of God. How many times is God speaking to you about a sin and you just keep saying, I'm not going to worry about it? And so no one will have an excuse, you see. That's the, that's the mercy of God, by the way. It's the justice of God, but it's the mercy of God. No one will be without excuse. They will have an, no one will have an excuse when they stand before God in their own righteousness. Can, can I ask you a question? You don't have to answer this out loud, but you all know this. You should know it. Is there any good in our righteousness, in our own righteousness? As far as we know from the Bible, I mean, there's not one place from Genesis to Revelation that says our righteousness is any good at all. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 64, it tells us that our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. So what good is it to stand before God with our righteousness? It's not going to, we're not going to stand up at all. <laughs> Think about that for a moment. It reminds me of Song 1, and if you could turn there and just kind of mark this one particular spot there in Psalm 1. But there in Psalm 1, I've got to read this to you, so I don't want to misquote it, so I want to look at it clearly. But it says, when it talks about, you know, blessed is a man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand on the path of sinners, since he is seated as scornful. Uh, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. His, in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, brings forth his fruit in the season, whose leaves will not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. But then he, he goes to the, you know, the, the extreme uh, opposite, and he says the ungodly are not so. The ungodly are not so. They, uh, they're like the chaff which the wind drives away, therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. They're not going to stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So we don't stand if we try to stand on our righteousness because our righteousness is as filthy rags. You see. So no one's going to have an excuse when they stand before God in their own righteousness because they're going to perish. Bottom line. Our coming to Christ... What happens? We, we give what we consider our righteousness to God and then realize that what we're giving to Him is not only our, what, what our consideration is of righteousness, but we're also giving Him who we really are, which is sin. You know, we, we, we just came into this world as, as sinners and when we come to Christ, we lay down our sins. We lay down what we are. That's what we really are. We're just sinners. And God says, okay, give me your sin. I'll give you something. I'll give you the righteousness of my Son. Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for you. 
And when I look at you then, I'll see his righteousness. I'll see his blood. I'll see his work. I'll see his doings. And then I'll take care of you. Because it's not your righteousness. Paul says in in Titus, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. According to his mercy. So, just think of the indictment then in the statement given in verse 28. And I mentioned it already. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. They had rejected the Lord so much that the truth had perished in the land. (coughs) The people had sinned beyond repentance. They had gone so far in their rejection that they would never repent. So you see, if we truly know the Lord and we we love the Lord, His chastening chastening will bring us back to Himself. It will bring us back in contrite obedience. It will bring us back to where we need to be with God. Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. You're familiar with this. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, the correction of the Lord, you know, the the instruction, uh, the discipline of the Lord, you see. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest His correction. For whom the Lord loves, He corrects. Just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Now, now Paul in Hebrews chapter 12 takes this particular passage and, and really, really expands on it because he says in Hebrews 12 verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. And here it is. Proverbs 3 verse 11 and 12. My son did not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. By the way, that's a tremendous statement coming up this coming Sunday. We've had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Today, kids get, you know, get, kids get rebuked or they get corrected. And all they want to do is turn on their parents. Where's the respect? Where's the respect? goes on, shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of Spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, it seems uh, seem best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful at the present, but painful. Well, we, those of us who remember going to school and having teachers that swatted us, can't do that anymore in schools. But back then, hey, we learned lessons. Couldn't sit down for a little while. It was tough, man, but we learned a lesson. We never did, what, you know, we didn't do that stupidity again. Honestly, it taught us a lesson. And when I became a teacher, I had a paddle. And I used it. And I had parents come and thank me for it. And a couple of years later, they told me I couldn't use it anymore. I said, Okay. So I just put my Bible on my desk. There were times when I'd have to sit down and tell them. And they said, well, you can't do that in public school. I did. So I'm not afraid of the government. I'm more afraid of the God that created us. You know. 
afraid. Don't fear them. Don't fear man. These kids need to know what the truth is. At first, sometimes you have to wake them up, you know, but no more. You can't do that. Okay. Then I'll do this. Look, here, you know, God, go get you. (laughs) Oh, okay. That kind of thing. So no, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful, you know. Uh, nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, what, what is Jeremiah telling us here? God chastened them, but didn't do any good. They just said, we still want to do what we want to do. So, in the next section of the passage, verses 29 to 31... Now, at first it is unclear whether Jeremiah is to cut off his own hair in mourning over the unrepentant sins of Jerusalem, or if the command is for Jerusalem, for them to cut off their hair and to cast it away. There's a picture here. Cutting away, or cutting off and casting away. That's what God is doing to the nation. So whether he's telling Jeremiah or he's telling the nation to do it, he says, cut your hair, cast it away. There's another reason about the hair, because if you go back to the Nazarite vow, the Nazarite vow is the one who, whoever takes the vow to, to, obey, to obey the Lord and serve the Lord was to leave his hair long. The cutting away is saying, God's cut you off. And the casting it away is, we've been cast away. So anyway, it goes on to say here, uh, by the way, the mo- more modern translations state uh, that uh, it's Jerusalem for the same reason, that's to, repent, uh, to weep over their unrepentant sins. But the leaning would be toward Jerusalem because the verse, or I should say the verbs that are used in verse 29 are, are in the feminine case. And Jerusalem always spoken of as, as a daughter, uh, so in a female sense. So it's probably Jerusalem that it's talking about. But nonetheless, it says here in verses 30 and 31, For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, saith the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name, to pollute it. What is that saying? Well, they put their abominations, they put their idols in the temple. And they've polluted the temple. And then it says, And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. Sure, they went to the temple, but their homes were filled with all kinds of idols, and their lives filled with all kinds of wickedness, and then they brought that into the temple. And there is something to think about in the next verse here, and following, that has a lot to do with the days and the times in which we live. Dealing with the fire and the, on Tophet. Because the results of all the sexual freedom they had, and all of the idol worship that denigrated into their sexual orgies was this. There was a lot of unwanted children. What are we getting at? There was a lot of unwanted children. Remember, they were adopting the gods of the nations around them, the pagan gods, and all of them. History and archaeology attest to the fact that everything that they did in their worship of their idols was sexual for the most part. And so there was a lot of unwanted children. So what do we do with them? Well, this is what they did. They would go to the Valley of Hinnom, which was on the south side of Jerusalem. And they would offer these children 
to the god Molech on Tophet, the high places of the valley. Tophet was the high places in the valley. High places always signified this is where they took their idols to worship. And there they would burn alive these children in the bronze hands with a fire underneath to heat up the bronze. Or as some say, it was actually Molech was, was more like an open you know, belly and they would you know, heat up the, the, uh, the idol and they would place the children on that burning bronze. And they not only got rid of the problem they had with all these unwanted children, but they also believed they would be blessed for their actions. Because you see, Molech brought them good luck, or so they thought. People are no different today. Sexual freedom has led to many children being conceived in the womb, and then because they're not wanted, they are, they are offered as a sacrifice to the God of pleasure. Today it's called abortion. We call it murder. And isn't it fitting that Hinnom means the place of fire and is used 12 times in the New Testament for the place of eternal punishment? And that word is the name Gehenna. The word Hinnom is in the word Gehenna. So there's that particular tie. To give you an idea of what Gehenna was and and, and what it uh, was pointing to spiritually and eternally, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus said, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. And the word hell fire there is the word Gehenna. And the people knew what he was talking about. It was a constant burning at the south end of the city in a valley. It was their dump. It was their garbage dump. It was where they burned all their trash. In James chapter 3 verse 6, James talks about the tongue and he says the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell and the word hell there is the word Gehenna. So even our words can defile us. It is the place that is reserved for the devil and his angels. Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 41, Then he he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, in the Greek, everlasting fire is not the word Gehenna, but it it, it was known to be Gehenna just in the thought of what it was saying. Because of the fire. Because of the constant fire. The eternal fire. The fire never went out. It's constantly burning. But at the south side, you know, one just blows it away. Not into the city, but away from the city. The city's up above. But they understood when Jesus said, an everlasting fire. Their only thought would be Gehenna. So it's interesting to me that the name for the high places, Tophet, comes from the root word Toph, which means drum. 
Because it is said that the cries of the babies were drowned out with a drum. Josiah himself, the king, during the time, the early time of uh, Jeremiah's ministry, in the 18th year of his reign, instituted some, some major reforms concerning these high places. Second Kings 23, verse 10, it says, He defiled Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire to Molech. That was one of his, his own reforms. But eventually Tophet was turned again into that garbage dump possibly in response to Jeremiah's prophecy where the fires were kept burning to consume garbage, animal carcasses, and dead bodies. What a vivid picture of hell that is. You know, if Jesus talked about it, I would say, believe it. Believe. If Jesus talked about it, then believe it. You know, some people today say, oh, there's no hell. Well, we'll find out soon, I'm sure. But the fact of the matter is, if Jesus said it, you know that uh, you look carefully at the scriptures, you realize that Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. And the reason would probably be because he doesn't want anybody to go there. It's not God's desire that anyone should perish. It's not his desire. And hell itself wasn't made for man. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. So it isn't like God is sending people to hell. People go to hell because they choose to disobey God. It's pure and simple. And they have every, every opportunity to come to Christ. Well, to close out what we have before us here tonight... Verses 32 through 34 says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, when it will no, lo- no more be called Tophet, the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Tophet until there is no room. And of course, many, many people will die when, Babylon, when, when the Babylonians come and bring about this, this particular judgment upon Judah. For they will bury in Tophet until there is no room. The corpses of this people will be food for the birds of the heaven, for the beasts of the earth. No one will frighten them away. And then I will cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness. There won't be any mirth. There won't be any gladness anymore. The voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride for the land shall be desolate. What a sad day it is when God removes himself from a people or a nation. When he does, there is no more joy, no more gladness, but only desolation, emptiness. And so that is the prophecy of this sermon called the Temple Sermon. But uh, I don't want to leave on that note tonight. Because there is joy in the Lord. His grace and His mercy that He offers to us without measure. There's tremendous joy in the Lord. We should be joyful in having a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
We should rejoice in knowing that God has blessed us with every good and spiritual gift that comes from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. We should rejoice in the fact that Jesus gave himself completely and totally so that we might have life completely and totally in him and not fear the coming of the Lord. He's given us so much to be thankful for. Isaiah 35 verse 10 says, And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That's the joy of the Lord. And of course you have to understand that the remnant itself would be the remnant that was in captivity and is now coming out of captivity and saying, thank you, God. They stayed faithful to the Lord. They remembered the Lord. They repented of their sins. They came out with joy and with hope of getting back to Israel, getting back to Jerusalem, getting back to Zion. And there's no greater joy for a person who's been separated from God and and, and comes to know the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. What joy there has to be in that person to have lived a life that was so unsure and, 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 and then to come to one that is of great assurance because you see blessed assurance Jesus is mine oh what a foretaste of glory divine heir of salvation purchase of God born of his spirit washed in his blood the work is Christ's work that's why we can rejoice as believers this is my story This is my song. Praising the Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising the Savior all the day long. It begins with submission to Christ. Loving submission because His love to us is a perfect love. And remember what John said in his letter, perfect love casts out all fear. What fear do we have if we are in the love of Christ? What fear? I fear nothing. I don't even fear death. Because Jesus is alive. Amen? Let's pray.